You are listening to the Hematology podcast by Sanofi. Thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, TTP, is a hematological disease so rare that all professionals struggle to identify it. In this episode, we talk to a hematologist who has diagnosed and treated patients with TTP, and we discover what actions the hematologist takes when facing this deadly acute disease, which has an incidence of six per million in a year. This is the Hematology Podcast, and I am Mats Mero. Some years back, Dr. Henrik Fredriksen and his colleagues met a patient with a set of symptoms that caused confusion for a number of days. The patient was anemic, thrombocytopenic, had petechia and a fever, and in addition, neurological symptoms. The suspicion turned to acquired thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, a rare disease that left untreated has a mortality of approximately 95%. Hendrik Fredriksen is a professor of clinical hematology of the University in Odense in Denmark. Hendrik, you are an expert in this area. Welcome to the show, and thanks for being able to tell us about this difficult disease. Thank you very much, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I understand you're interested in benign hematology. That's interesting. All hematologists work a lot with malignancies, but but it's important to take care of these other difficult areas we have. I, of course, agree very much with that uh, point of view. Malignant hematology is, uh, is of course, the biggest part of a hematology department, but the rare diseases, uh, which is quite often in the benign area, are important to have somebody to have pay an interest to, otherwise they are left a bit often in a, in a big cancer department. So that's my, that's my uh, secret, not so secret, I guess, love. So regarding TTP, could you just briefly tell us what is actually TTP? TTP is, uh, as you said, a very rare disease. Uh, it's um, a very, uh, only a few in a million uh, per year. It's a thrombotic uh, microangiopathy where formation of micro uh, thrombi in, uh, disperses uh, over the circulation causes the overt symptoms, uh, the organ failure symptoms or the organ directed symptoms. But it also has um, anemia and thrombocytopenia as part of the uh, clinical picture. So the combination of these three, the, the anemia, which is uh, hemolytic, and uh, thrombocytopenia and uh, organ symptoms are the hallmarks that should make clinicians uh, suspect TTP. And of course, due to the formation of uh, microthrombi all over the circulation, it is a quite severe disease with a very high mortality if not diagnosed or not treated, as you said. So that's what we should remember. Hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia and organ symptoms. That's right. So let's turn to this case that you had. Could you tell me a little bit about the case and and how you eventually, because it took some time until you finally thought about TTP. Yeah, it took a little while. I mean, being such a rare disease, uh, you are relying on clinicians remembering it. So um, the particular case had, well, all the symptoms really, uh, which of course is uh, uh, easy to diagnose when you know the, the answer, but she was uh, mentioned as a patient with uh, hemolysis and thrombocytopenia when I heard about her. And I said, well, it could be TTP, but these patients quite often would have uh, neurological symptoms or any other organ-directed symptoms. And having said that, uh, the doctor said, well, she did actually mention that some days back she had um, what would no 
normally be considered a TIA. Um, I mean, difficulties in speech or blindness that comes and goes and things like that. And she had that sort of symptoms. And well, knowing that the diagnosis was very uh, straightforward, the next thing you just do is rush to the patient and get a blood film and then see if there is some um, fragmented uh, blood, red blood cells, just the sides. So. But you can, in these cases, also see other organ symptoms. What could that be? It could be symptoms of um, myocardial ischemia. Um, it can be rare instances and rarer than other thrombotic microangiopathies, uh, uh, kidney symptoms. Yeah, so that would quite often be uh, the organs that are affected. Uh, the brain, the uh, heart, kidney, yeah, usually that sort of uh, organs. And you have referred to what we've seen in the lab list so far. We've seen the anemia, hemolysis, the thrombocytopenia. How about DIC, the DIC values? How should they be? Yeah, well, in a classical TCP case, they would normally be completely normal. The other calculation factors that you measure in your standard biochemical workup. So you should be completely normal. That's important to remember, I think. It is, yes. Another thing is, I mean, the clinical picture is overlapping, of course. So patients with DIC can have the same sort of features, but they would have severely affected the coagulation factors if you measure them. So it's relatively straightforward to distinguish. And then you, from the bedside, want to run to this acute test that you hinted on here. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that can help you very much in your suspicion. What is that? Well, yes, um, patients with TTP always have, as you said, uh, hemolysis, thrombocytopenia, and then they have these uh, characteristic uh, fragmented uh, red blood cells, schistocytes in their blood film. And it's it's a very simple test to do. It's, it's just, I mean, making the blood film and asking uh, to have it dyed and look in the microscope. So it's not, a, I mean, it's not completely diagnostic because you can have schistocytes with other uh, thrombotic diseases, but the clinical picture together with this would be very su- suggestive of uh, TCP in this case. And and then you can act. And this is something you actually do yourself, just on peripheral blood. That's right. We ask our uh, doctor on call to do it themselves. And if they're in doubt, they can call a pathologist to help them. But I mean, quite often they would feel comfortable uh, giving it a go to look in the microscope. I mean, uh, clinical hematologists, at least in my department, doesn't do that a lot anymore. So uh, we're very dependent on pathology service, but this particular one, I think we can we can do uh, give it give it a, a shot at least to see if um, if you feel comfortable in, in in looking for schistocytes. I think we have often taken a bone marrow since there might be thrombocytopenia and other things that one considers, and then you can ask for schistocytes in there also. Yeah, but maybe it's easier, like you say. Yeah, and I mean, it's a bit more time-consuming to do. It's a fast, uh, hematologist things of bone marrow are very fast to do, and they are very fast to do, but time is really an issue diagnosing and treating a TCP patient. So any sort of uh, diagnostic workup should not really delay you at arriving at treating the patient. So making a blood film is really a matter of no time. So in this case, you actually found the schistocytes. Were you convinced then? Yeah, I was quite convinced. I mean, the story was very suggestive, and... Um, of course, you need to sort of tease out the, what exactly happened with that TIA. And what she described was really very characteristic for, you know, a standard TIA episode. But And then with the blood results, it was, and the blood film, it was really straightforward. And then you're ready to run to treatment, or is there something else you want to do first? 
Yes, there is a single test you wish to do before you start treatment. I mean, uh, the pathophysiology behind TCP is uh, deficiency of the enzyme that cleaves von Willenbrand factor, uh, the enzyme abbreviated AMTS13. And you really wish to uh, have a sample to measure that. You won't get the result. I mean, most uh, labs would uh, take some time, some days or some hours to uh, do the standard workup for that. But you wish to collect the sample and freeze it and then start treatment. And that's also, of course, very fast to just uh, draw the blood, freeze it, and then go ahead with treatment. Yes, and the, but the ADAM-TS13 is crucial, of course, for, for the eventual diagnosis. It is. I mean, it, it's... You actually get two parts in the results, often. Uh, you get two parts, that's right. Yes, you do get, I mean, you get the enzyme activity, and uh, it should be below 10% uh, for diagnosing TCP. Uh, or usually it's very much lower, but in that area can be, I mean, that will usually be a, a threshold. And the other thing you would get is um, whether there is antibodies directed against ADAM-TS13 for the classical uh, immune-mediated uh, TTP, which is the most frequent type. So you, you'd get both, really, yeah. So most labs would look for deficiency, and if it's there, the enzyme deficiency, they will look for antibodies. So these antibodies, that, that shows us that it's really an immune-mediated disease with, with these antibodies. Yeah, exactly. In contrast to another type of TTP. Yeah, the, the very rare, I mean, among the, within this rare disease, there are very rare congenital forms where patients are deficient of ADAMTS13 due to genetic alterations. It's a recessive disease. and um, uh, these patients can have their first TCP episode, I mean, in childhood, of course, but they could also uh, have it later on. So diagnosing um, TCP in, a, for instance, a, a young woman would uh, not exclude her from having a, a congenital form. So that's why you need both the enzyme activity, but also the antibodies. Today, we're talking about the acquired form, but it's good to know about yeah, the congenital yeah. form also. It is, yeah. You just have to remember it's there. It's, it's very rare, of course. Now we have come to a diagnosis. We are ready to start treatment. Should we just think about, is there any more workup you need to do to exclude other conditions, other differential diagnosis? Well, the, uh, certainly the diagnostic workup should continue. But my point is, do not delay treatment if you wish to do more diagnostic workup. Clinical pictures from other diseases can resemble TCP and you don't know in the middle of the night or weekend or whatever time the patient is uh, in your uh, ward, what are the exact cause behind this case. But you can start treatment, you can sample the MCS 13 blood samples and you can, in good daylight, continue the diagnostic workup, uh, which would exclude other causes underlying the clinical picture. And what we quite frequently see in the patients that we start treatment uh, is that they have uh, an undiagnosed or a cancer that is often disseminated, or they had a cancer they thought were uh, in remission, but it turned out it was not so well uh, the remission. So cancer can, solid tumors can occasionally resemble or start a clinical picture that resembles TCP. But in the middle of the night, it's not so important. You just wish to treat, and then you'll get these results in the next days. 
But that's interesting that you say that a cancer could mimic and look like a TTP, and you might start to treat it like that, but then you realize that it's not actually a TTP. Yes. And of course, I mean, of course, you need a rather grave talk with a patient and the relative in a couple of days when you find out that this is the case. Because continuing treatment for the uh, thrombotic microangiopathy that is um, visited by the solid tumor uh, does not really help. So it's, it's often a quite grave prognosis for these patients. Okay, so then we run to treatment. And uh, we here cannot talk in detail about treatment in this open podcast. I want to refer to these very recent guidelines from International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis that have been published. But I think here we can touch upon a little bit of the cornerstones in the treatment. What is, what is it you start with? Well, you really wish to get to a point where you are giving the patient plasma. And the next uh, thing is you also wish to uh, plasma exchange patient. You need two good uh, IV lines to do plasma exchange, but that's really the life-saving immediate treatment that you wish to start. So um, not delaying that is a very, very good thing. And then you, I mean, that, that you continue doing that for a while while doing all the other stuff you need to do, the diagnostic workup, as I mentioned, uh, and of course, also uh, targeting the immune process on underlying the uh, case, the disease. So the first thing to do is the plasma exchange, yeah. and you need this cath- catheter. Yeah. Uh, that can be tricky when you have a very thrombocytopenic patient, right? I agree. Yes, that's, uh, that's often an issue. Occasionally, you can, you can do the first uh, plasma exchanges just on peripheral uh, veins, if they have good uh, vein status, uh, you can uh, plasma exchange patients doing that. But quite often, you would wish for a central line. And as you said, that's tricky for patients with uh, thrombocytopenia. We're very used to this situation in hematology. A patient with acute leukemia would often require a central line as well. And patient has thrombocytopenia and you just transfuse. But in this case, you're a bit more reluctant to transfuse because you know the platelets will be used for making microthrombi. And um, so uh, doctors are reluctant to uh, transfuse, and, or hematologists <laughs> are reluctant, but anesthesiologists that needs to put in the line, at least in, in many departments in my country, would also be very reluctant to put in a central line for a severe uh, thrombocytopenic patient. So you can occasionally have a little uh, talk about that, and um, eventually the anesthesiologist decides he's the one who has to... He's responsible for putting in the line, of course, and if he wishes uh, uh, platelet transfusion, we accept that. So your message is avoid platelet platelet transfusion, but if necessary for the cathedral, you could do it, maybe. Well, well, my message is really in line with other uh, other things I already said. Do not delay. Hmm. If you you don't need long discussions, you just say, okay, no worries, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so then you start your. Plasma exchange, and how do you continue that? And what response do you expect? Yeah, I mean, the response is so, uh, it's uh, quite different. Uh, Some patients um, improve immediately, both on uh, clinical symptoms and uh, the biochemical results, and some takes a while before improving. But what we often see is that when patients start responding, the platelet counts goes up, and um, that's a good sign. And uh, I mean, we just monitor platelet counts and of course the clinical situation for the patient. And uh, 
when the platelet count stays normal, we stop and wait. And I mean, plasma exchanges on a daily basis or rarely, very in our institution, rarely two times. But if the patient is very severely affected, you can occasionally consider more often than daily plasma exchange. I remember seeing a case with a very prompt response the next day from severe CNS symptoms. But yeah. I guess that's not always the case. Sometimes the response can be slower. That's right. That's right. But I mean, we've, I've seen also what you mentioned and uh, also patients that were quite severely affected with a very severe uh, global or even lat- lateralized uh, symptoms from the brain. And um, that improved very, very slowly. Yeah. So in uh, you have to be patient in some cases and continue your, treat- your treatment for quite a long time. I agree. Yes, you have to be very, very patient and you have to remember that uh, almost any organ symptom you see is reversible. So, I mean, you have to not give up patients with severe symptoms from the brain, for instance, where you think, oh God, this is going to be a severely disabled patient afterwards. It's probably not going to be severely disabled or have quite mild symptoms from from the brain. So, um, yeah, please continue. It's, uh, it has a good prognosis once you once you get to the point where you treat the patient. And then we have the other backbone in the treatment, the immunosuppression. That's right. And I guess the aim is to reduce the antibodies. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You want to stop the autoimmune process. Yes. And that is also something you monitor when you plan the treatment continuation, or? That's right. I mean, yeah. Once uh, uh, once having diagnosed the patient and, and started treatment and uh, getting the ADMTS-13 results back, and you see the patient has both enzyme deficiency and positive antibodies, you measure ADMTS-13 later on also to see if it normalizes, uh, if the antibody goes away. And um, and you can, uh, if patients later on, for instance, if they normalize both the enzyme activity and uh, uh, clear their autoantibody, you can uh, occasionally see that the uh, autoantibody uh, comes back. And uh, some would argue that you should target that with your immunosuppressive treatment. And then you get to this tricky point when you actually decide to stop the treatment. That's not so easy in these cases. That's right. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're of course uh, cautious. Uh, You may have had a patient that were very severely affected with all uh, the complications and um, uh, stopping what was life-saving is, of course, um, something you want to uh, uh, be a bit cautious about. But you have to remember now that you, the patient is in your in your care and you can monitor the patient. Uh, he or she is in your hospital still. And uh, so stopping, you just uh, keep your central line and wait and uh, see what happens for uh, a while. And um, yeah, eventually when you feel comfortable, you just discharge the patient with very, very close um, contact to your uh, department. You want them to contact you directly with any type of symptoms, really. I mean, you, as I usually say, you'd rather see a common cold in the patients previously treated for TCP than you would miss a relapse. So it's, uh, you wish to have them, keep them close. Have you seen late relapses? It, yes, I have seen it. I, I mean, I must say it's not so frequent as it used to be, but I think the immunosuppressive treatment has improved a lot. And uh, I don't think we see that many relapses uh, anymore, but they do happen and they can be very late. And the particular patient that I mentioned to start with actually relapsed, I think it was seven years later. So um, by then we have discharged her from follow-up even. So, but she had a relapse, yes. 
So that's important to remember. Yeah. I have one more question. Could you just hint on what patients we actually meet that could develop acquired TTP? All right. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, it can, of course, develop just by accident as an autoimmune disease can occur in any patient at any time. While we understand what uh, the pathophysiology is, we quite often do not know what started the process. So that is one group. I mean, the accidental immune uh, TTP. But I think we see quite a number of patients that has already an autoimmune disease and now they're second or third. Yeah. So, I mean, we see quite a few with underlying autoimmunity like uh, lupus and mixed connective tissue disease and rheumatoid arthritis and that sort of stuff. Patients with previous hematological diagnosis, do you see that? Uh, I don't think it's so frequent, really. I mean, of course, uh, for the transplanted patients, we have a clinical picture that resembles but has has a different uh, pathophysiology. But I think it's for, in our institution, it's, I think it's quite rare to see a uh, classical uh, immune TCP episode for a patient with a hematological malignancy. But I mean, you can have clinical pictures that uh, resemble TCP in these patients, just like the solid tumors. But nowadays, when we have Adam TS13, that solves everything. I mean, you just wish, uh, you just get the result when you have that. Is it an immune process or is it not? But again, the difficult thing is to think of this and take the right samples. I mean, that's the real hallmark. You 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 want everybody to remember this very rare disease, and of course, that's impossible. But keeping uh, awareness is is a good thing. And um, I usually tell my students and my young doctors once you diagnose this, uh, once you diagnose a patient with TCP in your uh, emergency department, you you uh, do not touch the ground for the next two weeks <laughs> uh, because yeah, people get quite of course, proud to remember this rare disease. And, and uh, I also, always also congratulate them because it's, uh, it's, it's a good thing to do. And I mean, the other thing worth mentioning is that the symptoms are overlapping, as we said, with other thrombotic diseases. But nowadays you get some help, at least with the scoring system that has emerged. You just have to remember they're there, of course. But there is a, uh, the plasmic score and there's a French score that can help you to predict whether this patient would have ADMTS-13 deficiency and whether you should start treatment with plasma exchange. So we have this triad to remember, hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and organ symptoms. I remember this simple remembrance memory thing that I picked up at an ASH meeting, that the ITP, that is the good, healthy patient with low platelets, and the TTP, that is the really sick patients with low platelets. And it's a very good thing to... To mention, Matt, because of course for non, for hematologists that's straightforward, but for emergency physicians and young doctors, uh, the resemblance in the abbreviation of the of the name can cause some confusion. And you're very right that patients with ITP are usually healthy uh, with bleeding tendency, but patients with TTP are usually uh, quite ill. There are occasion Occasionally, there are patients that are very asymptomatic, but they're not. The, it's not the rule. They are, they are, as a rule, severely affected. Thank you so much, Henrik. This was very interesting. Is there something else you want to add? No, I think we covered. Uh, I think we covered what is uh, important, really, to uh, to get the idea and, and go ahead. So now we all go out to our wards to look for the to find our TTP patient. That's right. I can only recommend it. Make sure 
very proud and very happy if one's succeeding, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. In the next episode of the Hematology Podcast, we'll go into detail about the next generation sequencing and how we as hematologists can make the most out of this exciting new technology. Thank you for listening to the Hematology Podcast by Sanofi. Sanofi.